What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. If you love the Intelligence Squared podcast, you can support the show and help us do what we do by hitting subscribe via Apple Podcasts. And in return, you'll get bonus content, ad-free listening and early episodes too. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the podcast today, we're taking a look into the often misunderstood world of mental illness with consultant, forensic psychiatrist and now author, Dr. Ben Cave. Our host for today is Poppy Damon, senior producer at Blanchard House. Here's Poppy with more. As a society, understanding around mental illness from personality disorders and schizophrenia to addictions and depression is still nowhere near where it needs to be. And perhaps because of films like Silence of the Lambs, when mental illness leads to someone committing a violent crime, we are all the more plagued with outdated and fantastical ideas about causation and treatment. Dr. Ben Cave has spent 35 years working behind closed doors as a forensic psychiatrist, fighting an uphill battle to protect both the patient and the public. He joins me now to discuss what it's like working with some of the most violent and disturbed patients and the complexities of our mental health system, all of which is chronicled in his first book, What We Fear Most, Reflections on a Life in Forensic Psychiatry. Ben, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Hi, Poppy. Thanks very much for having me. Lovely to meet you. It's an absolutely brilliant book. I highly recommend it to listeners. And where I want to start is there's, there's a case really early on in your career that you describe in the book, which illustrates the power of delusions kind of overriding our natural instincts, I suppose. And it's a man who injures himself because of a false belief around a sexually transmitted disease. And I want to start there because I think it really illustrates the kind of patients you treat and your journey to rebuke ideas that mental illness is a construct or that you know, medication isn't required. So I wondered if you could tell me about him. Yeah, it, it was a tragic case, really. Um, I suppose, first of all, we need to understand what delusions are. They're firmly held beliefs, which persist despite evidence to the contrary. And they're held outside of people's normal social, cultural beliefs. So religious beliefs, beliefs in horoscopes, that's absolutely fine. But it's, I suppose, it's more to do with why we believe anything. And the sad reality is that when people are deluded, you can't talk them out of it. It is a, by definition, a delusion. So people are not amenable then to talk therapies, psychotherapies, cognitive behavioral work. And at that point, we have to rely on drugs, usually antipsychotic drugs. And 
hopefully the delusions then remit. The case you refer to, it was tragic because the man was chronically deluded despite really quite good treatment. And I think he ended up acting on his beliefs. And obviously, particularly in the case, I suppose, in cases of jealousy, where people act on their delusions, that's very much one of the pushes towards forensic psychiatry care. And and tell us a bit about what happened with this particular case. So you were a medical student, I think, at the time, and you went to treat him. What what was his delusion? Uh, He believed that he had syphilis and he thought that, well, he was being charitable to his girlfriend. He uh, He became chaste and he decided that he would not engage in sexual activities with his then girlfriend because he thought he had syphilis. Now, quite why he believed he had syphilis nobody knows, but he persistently went to the GU, genitourinary clinic, for treatment. He persisted, he hassled them, he harassed them. Effectively, he was stalking the members of the clinic, and then he put matches through the letterbox. So eventually he was charged with arson. And uh, it's rather a gory story. I'm not sure you really want it on the podcast, but he ended up amputating the end of his penis to get rid of the to get rid of the uh, syphilis. Naturally, it's just uh, a psychotic thing to do. But ultimately, he was being transferred from general psychiatry services to forensic services. And that's where I ended up working. He went to the same unit where I later trained and then became a consultant. And I say, it, it is a gory story, and there's, there's a few of those in the book, but <laughs> I think it's important because you very cleverly go through the ways in which these delusions can be really dangerous and harmful. And to get to the point where you would self-injure in that way obviously speaks to a really deep problem. I want to ask you next about why psychiatry. I mean, what, what motivated you to become a psychiatrist uh, in the first place? It's a very good question. I, I went to medical school. Naturally, psychiatrists have to become doctors first. And I was one of that relatively rare breed who went into medicine in order to do psychiatry. I I decided I was going to be a psychiatrist. When I was about 14, I was having a chat with my dad is how I open uh, the book, just a fairly innocent conversation where he says, Ben, what are you going to do when you grow up? And he went through a list of possibilities. And I just seized on the possibility of medicine. It kind of just made sense. It clicked. And thankfully, I've never regretted it, uh, not for a moment. Um, Why? I suppose I grew up with what I now understand to be a mother who was pretty depressed, pretty anxious, and she had lost her brother to suicide. So I think that I grew up in the shadow of that, and I didn't really quite appreciate the gravity of it until I was getting older and mental illness. And I've had my share of sort of the anxiety and uh, black dog days of depression, nothing quite as bad as I would see in my patient group. But I kind of can empathize with some aspects. And certainly by the time I was 13, 14, I had a good going case of obsessive compulsive disorder. And it just felt natural to go into to want to do psychiatry. I wanted to help people. It was an area that I naively at the time thought I could understand and make a difference. And I suppose if I have any uh, abilities, I do have some empathy and I like talking to people and hearing their stories. So I I suppose that's the uh, roundabout way of how I came into psychiatry. It's been a fascinating journey. On the subject of writing your book, you are writing under a pen name. What's behind that? Why Dr. Ben Cave? I wanted to maintain a degree of separation, to be honest, partly for me uh, and partly for my patients. Ben comes from my father, 
Cave is I've actually adopted my wife's name. So that's where Ben Cave comes from. Uh, I think it looks better than my real name also on the spine of the cover. I don't think my real name's particularly good for an author. I think Ben Cave's a lot snappier, but that's an aside. The real answer, though, I sit on tribunals, which is part of the judiciary. I think that if I were known to be an author, I think people would always be trying to process that information. I think also, I think it's only fair to try and maintain a degree of separation. Cases I've spoken about, they're anonymized. They're not real cases. I want to stress that. I think it's very important to respect confidentiality. And I've been very careful with multiple checks and reviews and legal checks to ensure that they are suitably anonymized. I've spoken about some cases which I have been involved with and I've used real names and real situations. Uh, But that's really when the case has been in the public domain to begin with. So that's why I've used Ben Cave. I think it's a healthier separation for me and for the patients. And of course, in the book, you know, as I've mentioned it, it's sort of forensic uh, psychiatry. One thing that's really interesting, and you must get asked a lot about, is the morality of it. And there's this moment when you talk about treating someone who killed their own child and what that means for you as a practitioner. I wonder if you could tell me a bit about that and how that operates in your work. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I'm not sure that when you're dealing with it and in the thick of it, you stop to look at the moral aspects that much. It's a complex area. It's a complex legal and ethical arena. I think one has to put one's morals to one side. And I do talk about two cases where women have killed their own babies, both for very different reasons, but ultimately both because of mental illness. And one went on to take her own life, and that was in fact a colleague. The point I want to make in it is not that mental illness or schizophrenia or manic depression is linked to violence. Whilst there may be a small increased risk for violence in schizophrenia, people with those disorders are mostly at risk to themselves, not to others. That's the big point I'd like to make. So what I'm dealing with is a minority of cases. And I think also... um, And I suppose it's the whole point of the book in many ways. It's not their fault. So when you talk about the moral side of the argument, I I think I want to debunk that because there is no case that I've come across, such as the ones we've just discussed, where I would hold the person culpable or to blame in any way, shape or form. And I think we need to remember that mental illness changes us fundamentally when we're deluded, hallucinated, when our brains aren't working as they should, as we expect them to on a day-to-day basis. It changes us and it makes us do things which other people perceive to be mad. And I use the term advisedly, psychotic. And it changes us irrevocably. It changes us during our illness. And we do things which we will regret. One of the stories which you've uh, mentioned in the book It was about the desperate challenge that the woman had to recover. And as she recovered and regained insight, she basically woke up to the awful realisation of what she'd done. And I suppose that was the most heartbreaking thing. And that's why I chose to write about that particular case. It was tragic. And her recovery, and she did recover, was slow and it was hard one. You spoke there about recovery. And I think one of the things that surprised me in the book in in a really good way is just the number of patients who were able to respond to treatment. And again, that's probably from my own misunderstanding of, of where we are with treatment. But I just wondered if you could talk to that part of your work, being able to give someone the chance to recover um, through through medication and how that's changed in the last 35 years. 
I, I started off doing general psychiatry and I became a specialist in general psychiatry. So I was treating people who had not committed serious offences. And then I effectively retrained. I went into forensic psychiatry, which is that branch of psychiatry that deals with mentally disordered offenders. And that's where I've spent most of my professional career ever since. I think treatments... <sighs> They get a bad press, and I think what I'd like to say is that, by and large, most people respond pretty well. Sure, there are side effects, sometimes very difficult, debilitating side effects, but we can try and manage those. And throughout my career, we've actually had a whole swathe of new second, third generation medications, and I can mostly treat people, and on the whole, they will recover sometimes with relapses. And I suppose it's also important to say that doctors often deal with chronic debilitating conditions. Very few people are cured from diabetes, from rheumatoid arthritis, hypertension. It's a disorder, it's a disease that we live with, and it's controlled by doctors with varying degrees of success. Psychiatry is no different. It's just another branch of medicine. And sure, there are psychological treatments, but fundamentally, my job is to try and get the person back to some sort of reality where they can have some insight into their disorder or condition. So that's really where the uh, interesting part of treatment starts after people have regained insight into their condition. And that's when we can let the psychologists do their work on what's the more discursive part of their treatment approach. So I help people get back to some sort of stability where they can then engage and start to recover in a more productive way. That's a kind of fascinating part of your job too, is as you say, actually getting someone to come back to a sense of reality means sometimes facing the things that they've done. And you kind of make this matrix analogy of the red pill, blue pill. And I just wonder if you could speak to that, what that's like when patients suddenly realise perhaps they've lost a number of years to to delusions they no longer hold. It can be very difficult and damaging. And I, I suppose in the red pill sense, I was using it very much in the literal way that I think it was used originally in the film that people are given a pill and wake up to this monstrous, terrible reality. So I'm not using it in perhaps the way the term has uh, morphed into. But I think that it was a very stark reminder of that when I treated a chap who had lost his daughter. She'd died in a road traffic accident with her boyfriend. And he couldn't accept that. And he had constructed a delusional system that kind of insulated him from that desperate reality. And I remember being involved in reviewing and changing his medication. The medication change worked. Uh, It was an off-license medication that we got from the US. And it seemed to suit him. And rather tragically, as he recovered, he started to regain insight into the fact he'd lost his daughter and all the tragic consequences of that. So in a sense, it was a, he did have a, a, an underlying mental disorder, but there was also a psychogenic aspect. I think in his particular case, his delusion, and it was that the children had been abducted, it was self-serving, it was comforting, it was the comfort of madness in the best and worst of ways. In my introduction, I mentioned the connection between crime and mental illness. Now, is that accurate to say that there is a connection there? We used to say mental illness doesn't cause crimes. Actually, the reality is it does, but not very much. And it's not as bad as you think, sort of thing. If if you look at the stats of, say, homicide, which is one of the neatest things to study because the cleanup rate by the police is very high, so we get most murderers. And it's around 11% consistently of people charged with murder who have an active mental health defence. 
So we know that probably one in 10, and this is the point I make in the book, that there's one in 10 people thereabouts uh, who have some sort of uh, mental disorder that could explain their violence. It sadly means, though, 90% of people don't have a mental health excuse, and they are people like you, like me, and they end up going to prison. So still, the overwhelming number of people who have mental disorders, the risk is to themselves, not to others, and that's a big point I'd like to make and reinforce. The risk is always suicide. I've had a very distorted, biased view of psychiatry by dint of working in mentally disordered offender and forensic field, but that's not psychiatry as a whole. Now, obviously, with the cases we've spoken about, they're very tricky, they're very upsetting in some ways. What kind of toll does it take on you and your colleagues working in this area? I think it's a very significant issue. I suppose when I was working in a major prison for a couple of years as a research fellow, I kind of lost my mojo. Uh, I started to think that everybody was either a murderer or a rapist or a paedophile or an arsonist or someone who had committed serious offences. And it kind of dents your confidence in human nature rather sadly. As I then continued my career and went into forensic psychiatry, I think it's very important to have some outlets. Uh, For me, for a time, it was triathlons and then long-distance triathlons, and I I got into that in a big way. I I love getting away. I think it's important that we all have our uh, escape routes. Mine's a little place in France where I go to recover myself. It's my little bit of heaven, and I adore skiing and open-water swimming now and continue to do both actively. So we need our escape routes. The, The difficulty is that... I don't think we really notice when things are going wrong for us. We kind of get lost in our own little worlds. And I would like to see, uh, and I'm not here to uh, preach, and I'm not here to try and change things. I'm a writer, and I, I suppose I just want to invoke some debate. We need more help in a proactive way. And we need to be brought to a situation where we can talk safely, privately with colleagues, with people we trust, and not to be judged by our feelings, because I think it's very easy to have negative feelings to some of the patients that we see. And I see people drinking too much. I see relationships break down. I I see mental disorders in colleagues, sometimes just an irritability, a shortness, a brusqueness that isn't them. And I think it's part of the pressure of the job. I think that's probably applicable to psychologists, to doctors, to nurses, to HCAs. We were dealing with very difficult sometimes highly demanding, sometimes very dangerous people. Would you like to support Intelligence Squared in what we do? Well, just hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts and you can listen to Intelligence Squared ad-free, enjoy exclusive bonus content and get weekly episodes in advance too. Hit subscribe and we'll see you on the other side. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Hello from Intelligence Squared. We'd like to invite you to explore the next live-streamed event in the Futureverse, our series produced in partnership with Ytree. In this event, and in the two podcasts that will follow it, we'll be examining a huge cultural shift that we're calling the value revolution. Ever since another transformational period, the industrial revolution, there has been a global consensus about what constitutes value. Products and services can be exchanged for money, which in turn pays for other products and services. But we are now in an era of disruption. Technology, disease and climate change are some of the key factors that have recently caused us to pause and re-examine our lives. We have entered the value revolution. How do we define value now? And how has this changed over time? Who has a say over what is deemed valuable or worthless? Join us to discuss these questions and more in our next event, Reimagining Worth, with guests including longtime FT columnist and now charity founder, Lucy Kellaway, Adrienne Buller, author of The Value of a Whale, a book that examines the truth of green capitalism, and the banker, co-creator, and host of the award-winning Money Maze podcast, Simon Brewer. The event will be moderated by award-winning journalist and broadcaster, John Sopel. Register to join us live online on Tuesday, 5th of July from 6.30pm. Just go to y-tree.com slash futureverse. That's y-tree.com slash futureverse. What do you think would build that safe collegiate space to, to have that? Does it need to be more built into the structures we have for healthcare professionals? What would make the change that you need to see? I'd like to see it uh, built in, particularly, I think nurses are probably better at it than doctors, if truth be told. I think they've got a better track record of looking after their own. I think that what I've seen over my professional lifetime is that we were taught to man up in old-fashioned vernacular. And I think it's it's the only way we could cope. I don't think we had systems or structures. And frankly, we didn't have the recognition of the post-traumatic stress or the stress issues that we're dealing with. And I think we need safe outlets rather than smoking, drinking, whatever it is that people find to cope with their particular stress. I wrote the book in part after a five-year appraisal. Every few years, uh, we have uh, an appraisal process. It was very much one of the reforms in the post-shipment world. And we discuss cases, and I was always a little bit suspicious about exploring the minutiae of what I did wrong. And naturally, it's a complex environment. We, We make mistakes, and we need to be able to talk about it safely and openly and privately. I was always a little suspicious of that process. And it was when my appraiser, actually a very talented psychoanalyst, wanted to hear about the cases, I thought, well, actually, it's time to overcome that inhibition. It's time to talk about what I've done. And I talk quite openly about some of the areas where I could have done things differently. I don't think, thankfully, it reaches negligence, but mistakes, yeah, we've made a few. I think any doctor who denies that is deluding themselves. So part of the reason for the book was to overcome that sense of inhibition and talk about what's important and why we do what we do and how to overcome the mistakes and learn from it. 
what's that process been like? Has it been cathartic? What, what's been the takeaway for you being able to put down all those years of experience and all those cases on the page? It's, it's been wonderful. Uh, yes, cathartic, revealing. I've learned about myself. I've thought about my family and I've thought about the patients. And I suppose I've come away from it perhaps slightly older and slightly wiser. I, I hope the reader does as well. It's the distilled essence of what's made me the psychiatrist and the doctor I've become. I just wanted to talk a little bit about the very specific guilt and weight, I suppose, on psychiatrists, especially with suicides and things like that. How does guilt play a role in your job and make it very hard? Yes, it, it does. Guilt is one of those very difficult emotions. And I, I think anyone who cares sufficiently about their fellow man will feel guilt when there is something going wrong. And I think it's a very difficult and sometimes insidious emotion to deal with. Um, I've seen a lot of colleagues who have been really taken apart by the loss of patients. I, I've had patients who have killed themselves, and I've seen I've had patients who have killed others, and it's the most difficult thing for general and forensic psychiatrists to deal with. It's horrifying, it's harrowing, it's difficult, it's traumatic, not only for the loved ones of the patient, but also for staff. And I think we need to look at that. Uh, I remember working in occupational health as a visiting psychiatrist. I would see people in not my own health uh, service, but in a neighboring service. And I would treat people for those issues of depression, of sometimes stress, and the burnout that sometimes goes with the work and seeing one problem too many beyond our coping strategies. And it's very difficult, and it was fascinating, but difficult work. Uh, I, I would encourage anyone in that situation to talk about it, to not try and accept the burden of blame themselves, which is the underlying feature of guilt. We feel responsible for things which really isn't our fault, couldn't be our fault, and isn't. So I think we need to talk about it openly with loved ones, uh, with professionals, and possibly more as a society. One thing that's kind of become a topic of late within this field, and that's the relationship between schizophrenia and other mental illnesses and race. We see black populations really overrepresented in certain illnesses. What do you make of that? And does that tell us something about the causes of these kind of illnesses? There is, sadly, uh, still, and I think it's probably still true that there is an over-representation of black minority groups within psychiatry. I think we need to state that very clearly. They are on community treatment orders longer than they should be. More of them are put on community treatment orders than they should be. They go into hospital under section more often than they should, and they stay in hospital longer than they should. And I think it's uh, increasingly recognised now by the Royal College that this is a problem. In effect, I think we're sort of waking up as uh, the policing world did in the uh, post-Stephen Lawrence inquiry uh, into the world of institutional racism. And I, I suppose that as I was seeing that changing landscape over my professional lifetime, I would accept that I've seen far more black patients than probably I should have. And it's an area I touch on in the book. I think the reasons for that excess are complex. Uh, I don't think it's because black people per se have more mental illness. I think there is a differential way they are dealt with by systems. I think there is an issue to do with an urban environment, a poorer population, and the way their problems are perceived. So I think there are still issues 
of huge importance of racism in psychiatry. And it's uh, colleagues like Shibaladi Smith and Cam Bowie who are doing great research in these areas and calling us out on it, and quite right to. And do you think that change has begun? Do you think people are sort of being reflective and really trying to deal with it within the field? Yes, absolutely. When I was uh, going into psychiatry, I don't recall being taught by a single black doctor at medical school. Uh, The first time, this is South London, when I was um, in my early training years, I remember seeing a patient and I rather naively said, would you rather see a black psychiatrist? And he looked at me, (laughs) raised his eyebrows and said, do you know one? And he was right to say that because actually there were very few and, you know, they were coming through the system in Britain as I was becoming a psychiatrist myself. So they are the pioneers of the black minority ethnic groups. And I think they're doing a brilliant job at the moment to talk about issues of race and discrimination. And it's never been more important. Absolutely. And on the subject of how the field is changing, one thing I mentioned in the introduction was, which comes from your book, that films like Silence of the Lambs or One Flew of the Cookie's Nest kind of can inform people's understanding of what it's like in a mental health unit, for example. Do you find that does come up in your work? Do you meet people and they think, you know, it's lobotomies or electric shock therapy and all these sorts of things? I mean, do people have a misconception in your field? I think people have always had a misconception about psychiatry. And I suppose in some ways, when you look at the historical narrative of the treatments that we've done from spinning chairs to insulin coma therapy, spinning uh, chairs? possibly it's well-deserved. Can you tell us what those are? Uh, spinning chairs. <laughs> it was something I remember reading about as a, uh, as a trainee. People were spun rapidly in chairs and it was meant to uh, treat their psychosis or their problems. It's completely bizarre, it's absurd, and it's meaningless. But when you don't have any treatment for something which is the most catastrophic, chronic, debilitating disorder, where people hallucinate, are deluded, are thought disordered, literally crying out with distress and anguish. Uh, I think that people resorted to anything they could. And it was only since the 1950s. I mean, ECT came in in the 30s and successful treatments with antipsychotics and antidepressants, that was in the back end of the 1950s. So we actually have a very short narrative of successful treatments. And we were locking up countless numbers of people in the old-fashioned Victorian asylums. And over my, they were starting to close down with the movement into the community and care in the community, and quite rightly so, because whilst the asylums had their place for some people, my goodness, they were difficult, damaging, atypical, unusual, pathological environments for most. So it's quite right that we were getting people out into the community, which is where most people are now treated. Uh, I suppose in many ways, my job in uh, the medium secure services, locked forensic psychiatry units, it's a bit atypical. People still spend a long period of there, but I suppose that's the sort of institution that some people still think psychiatry look like. looks like. It's not. Most people are treated at home and rightly so. Another subject that is often talked about in this area is cannabis and its connection to triggering certain mental illnesses. How much do you see the rise of things like skunk or you know, hydroponic cannabis affecting the patients that you see? Poppy, I confess I start off by the assumption that everyone is using cannabis until it's disproven. I almost, I I have to ask, it's part of the job, God knows, but I I assume that people are using substances. Uh, Does it cause schizophrenia? Uh, Possibly, but the association is very weak. Does cannabis adversely affect people who have mental disorders? 
Yes, absolutely. And I suppose that's the big take-home message. Loads of people use cannabis. It's not that damaging for some. I'm certainly not advocating it, but it probably doesn't cause most people to become floridly mentally unwell. But my goodness, if you have schizophrenia or psychosis and then you're using high-potency cannabis with high THC rates, then you're going to have a times 8 times 10 risk of relapsing mental illness. And I see that time and time again. There are some people who are so sensitive to it that I see them become unwell after even a puff. What can you do but say, really, you shouldn't use it? We can try, we can preach, we can cajole, we can give them motivational interviewing. But until somebody wants to change it themselves, it's very difficult to change people's behavior, especially when it comes to what's increasingly recognized as addiction and cannabis is addictive. I really was struck by the story about the young man that you felt a kind of personal connection to in the book and how he's sort of very resistant to taking medication and then you sort of managed to convince him. And I just wondered if you could share what you've learned from your patients essentially and how that process goes, because that's what also comes through in the book, that you're treating them, but you also learn from them and, and become a better doctor for it. I've been treating people since I was 23. Uh, I went into psychiatry when I was 24, so I was still a young man. I don't think I had really experienced too much grief. I I'd had a fairly privileged background in many ways. I hadn't lost anybody. And I was suddenly thrown into a situation where people were full of grief, sometimes in the throes of mental illness, and almost always in considerable distress, personal and family problems rife. And I was expected to deal with them. And I, I suppose that as I've gone through my career, and as things inevitably have happened to me, difficult things, bereavements, divorce and such like, we grow and we mature. And I, I, I think I use a discussion in the book about what I've learned from my patients as a microcosm for my own development. And I think that most of us do learn from our patients. Uh, certainly any good doctor, I, I think, is always on the hunt for what they can take from their patients. Sometimes patients have taught me about racism and the problems uh, inherent in that particular societal evil. Patients have taught me about what it means to lose lives, careers through mental illness. And people have taught me very graphically about how difficult it is to accept the medication because it's a tacit acknowledgement that they have a mental illness. And the case I think you've referred to was a particularly difficult young man who I kind of identified with early in my training. And he was a particularly bright chap. He had done very well getting into a top university. And then his life had fallen apart. And I found him in a pretty desperate situation, that, that the house was filthy, it was rat infested, there was tinfoil on the wall, there was a small axe or a machete uh, by the front door to protect him from intruders. He could barely express himself because he was so thought disordered, he thought people were plotting against him, and his sole purpose in life was to stay alive and avoid his persecutors. And for two or three years, this had become his reality. That's what persistent desperate psychosis that was actually schizophrenia in his case looks like in extremis and he wasn't able to get the help he needed he'd been kind of forgotten by his loved ones i don't think his family were around to help him and he was rotting in the community and getting him into hospital treating him with medication kind of coercing him into medication, cajoling him into it, was one of the best things I've done. And uh, it, it made me realise that it's not acceptable to leave people in those environments. 
mental illness is a disorder, it needs treatment. And whilst I accept there is always a balance to be had in terms of the care we give against the harm we might cause, I think my starting point is let's treat it for what it is. It's an illness that needs assertive management. We've talked a lot about some of the cases in the book and and some of the themes. Is there one thing you want readers to take away from this book and your years of experience in this field uh, that you would want to share with us? There are treatments. Uh, There are good treatments. Um, I I suppose part of the reason for writing the book is to help the process of destigmatization and also to make a more nuanced judgment away from the old-fashioned mad or bad paradigm. And I suppose I want people to be more sophisticated in their thinking so that they know what mental illness looks like. We've moved, I think, as a society, quite rightly towards thinking about mental health issues. But in doing so, I think we've lost the narrative a bit about mental illness. And it still exists. And it's severe, and it's serious, and it's not talked about as much as mental health and maintaining that resilience that we all need in life. So I suppose I just want to redress that balance and say that there is help, there is support, it can be bewildering, it can be difficult for people, but persevere through your GP, get referred to the local mental health services, the community mental health teams, try and find somebody you know and trust uh, in those services and get the help that you want. It could be drugs, it could be therapies, but whatever it is, get it and get it early. Try not to ignore it. So I want to help shape the narrative that we're now talking about in terms of mental illness and try and reassure people that it's okay to talk about it. We're doing it in medicine a lot more. We need to be saying it in psychiatry loud and clear. Thank you so much, Ben. That was Dr. Ben Cave, author of What We Fear Most, Reflections on a Life in Forensic Psychiatry, which is now available from Seven Dials. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. I've been Poppy Damon. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to support us in providing a home for passionate debate, deep discussion and answering the big questions that really matter, do consider becoming an Intelligence Squared Premium Podcast subscriber today. For just a small amount each month, you won't just be directly helping us continue to do what we do. You'll also be getting exclusive episodes each month, ad-free listening and early access to currently available via Apple Podcasts. You just need to hit the subscribe button. And if you're not an Apple user, don't worry, we're working on something for you too. Thanks for being a listener, supporting Intelligence Squared, and you're just one click away from getting some exclusive extras too. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.